Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome, sweet, sweet angels, to yet another episode of After Work Drinks With... This week, we are so bloody excited to be speaking with British journalist and feminist author Catelyn Moran. Catelyn's 2011 book, How to Be a Woman, is credited by everyone from Clementine Ford to our very own Grace O'Neill as being one of the books that originally got them embracing the feminist movement. Now, another of Catelyn's books, a true-ish story of her life as an up-and-coming music journalist in the UK in her teens, traveling the world with some of the UK's biggest artists, is about to be released, and it stars none other than our fave girl, Beanie Feldstein, in her first ever lead role. Ahead of the release of How to Build a Girl, we spoke to Catelyn about everything from growing up in a sexist household to how the feminist conversation has changed since the release of How to Be a Woman to living across the road from Morrissey. How to Build a Girl isn't out yet in Australia because of COVID, but we've seen it. We bloody loved it. Beanie was incredible. It's such a cool story. And we highly, highly recommend that everyone goes and watches it as soon as it comes out. Enjoy. Hello, how are you? Hi, Hi Catelyn. Hi, thanks how so much you? for taking the time to talk to us. Hello. Now it's Hello. just us. Hello. Now it's just us with the wine. Yeah. <laughs> wine? What yes. time is it there? 8 a.m. It's called After Work Drink. <gasps> You're whining at, is that really no. wine at 8 a.m.? No. I was going to say. We're in Australia. It's, it's, it's night time. So. Grace. We're boozing it I up. just had to chuck my wine in the bin because I was trying to drink it and it was like most definitely off. So I had to pour it down the drain just then. It took me many, many years to realise that wine could be off and that I was yes. indeed drinking. I just thought like I was just being a bit weak, that I just needed to show more gumption, that you could drink your way through it. And then someone once just got my, got my glass and went, that's corked. And I was like, is that bad? They were like, yeah. Like, Why don't you just drink nice wine? And that was a revelation to me. I was like... You don't have to be a bin and drink the shit stuff. You can hold out for good things. 
Yeah, uh, we were talking last night about how as you get older, you just you start moving up. Like now people are drinking Chardonnay. And I was like, I could never imagine drinking Chardonnay when I was younger because it would just taste like absolute vomit because you were buying like $8 bottles of wine. Yes. And also as you get older, I don't know if you've got the thing yet, but as you get older, you produce less of the enzymes that allow you to digest alcohol. So by the time you get to my age, 45, wine is so painful for the next two days afterwards that you need to be making sure that you're drinking a good glass at the time. Otherwise the entire process is just unpleasant. We actually did a um, test the other day where we went out for dinner and drinks and we only drank natural wine, got really drunk, smoking, everything, didn't have a hangover. No hangover. (gasps) Okay, so what's natural wine then? I don't know. Just has like it just says natural on the on the. It's just more expensive. It's just (laughs) more expensive version of cheap wine. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I guess the more expensive, the less you would drink. So that would work. I can see that working. Yes. Put a price barrier. I have no idea, but they market it as having no chemicals, and it it tastes different. But uh, yeah, no hangover. I don't know if that was placebo or not, but I'm just going to go with it. Okay. You know, everything's an experiment, isn't it? I'm ready to try expensive wine in the name of science. So yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) <laughs> okay, shall we jump into things? We both watched How to Build a Girl and we loved it Amazing. so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you. We were talking about how it would be quite a strange experience to cast a sort of younger version of yourself, but we also imagine that if we could cast a younger version of ourselves, there would be nobody we would rather cast than Beanie Feldstein. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, <laughs> whether whether you're a woman, whether you're a man, like if you're from another planet, a you dog. would want Beanie playing you. Yes, every, yeah. Beanie can play everything and should play everything. Should, that is my yeah. political belief. <laughs> Had you seen Booksmart beforehand and like how much say did you have in the casting? No, she only just finished shooting Booksmart when she came to do How to Build a Girl, but we'd seen her in Ladybird, and it was just very obvious that she was the breakout star in that. So we tried to find a British actress, and we were really keen on seeing if we could find an unknown, because the dream is always that you give someone like their first big role and they, you know, they become a star. But we just couldn't find anybody who could do the whole thing, because I, what I hadn't realised when I was writing the script is that I'd written something that was virtually uncastable, because you have to have a big girl who's like playing a sort of innocent, funny, smart, 16-year-old girl who then goes into this huge transformation, turns into a massive bitch, so much dialogue, so much timing with all the comedy, and then goes through this huge transformation and comes out the other side, and is in every scene. And how many actresses who are 16 and big and working class and from Wolverhampton are there that can do that? Like, kind of... So, thankfully, making a film takes a very long time. And in the 19,000 years that I was writing the script, (laughs) Beanie Feldstein had time to be born, have a huge career (laughs) on Broadway, and finally be dished up to us with loads of experience and ready to do this massive role yeah she's so amazing we're obsessed yeah she's so great so um it's such a kind of a classic coming of age type movie and I feel like everyone grew up with their iconic coming of age films that kind of impacted their childhood did you have movies that you were referencing as you were writing the script or were there things that you were kind of leaning on or re-watching during that process Well, what I've always, because I kind of started writing books and TV shows and movies quite late. And it was because for years I looked at all the movies and books and TV shows that existed and thought it had to be like that. Like kind of, you've got to tell a story where you're a teenage boy with some kind of magical power, like the force. And then you blow up a Death Star helped by robots and a sexy space cowboy. And uh, and I was like, I haven't got a story like that. I don't know how to do it. And then I had this revelation in my early 30s that you have to turn 180 degrees and face the other way and go, what haven't I seen? 
what isn't being made and for me although there are so many brilliant coming of age movies there are certain things in it that I was like that that makes me sad because I can't see myself in them so they're very rarely if ever working class and if they are working class then it tends to be quite a tragic story and they come from like a terrible place and their family are non-supportive and they've lived a life where they're kind of being tortured by the plot uh, you don't see big girls um, and you, uh, you, the character usually has best friends and you're told that the most important thing as a teenage girl is to find your friends and be part of a gang. And there's always a love story and it always ends up with someone having a boyfriend at the end of it. And as a big working class girl who didn't have any friends when she was a teenager and felt completely alone and who, when I went out in the world and met cool boys, they didn't become my boyfriends, they became my friends and that was more precious. That was the story I wanted to tell. Stories for big lonely girls who don't need to find a boyfriend. They can find hot boys and be their friend instead. Yeah, that's so interesting. So um, the movie is marketed as being a true-ish story, as was your novel of the same name. Um, what are the bits that actually happened to you as a teen that you think people would find the most surprising? And by that, I mean, was there a hot older muso that stole your heart? <laughs> uh, well, I'd say about 80% of the film is stuff that happened to me. I think when you're watching it, you'd think the bits that I made up they're actually true. The more ridiculous it is, the more likely that did actually happen. And the more prosaic it is, that probably was a bit I had to make up for the plot. Um, so yeah, so I wanted, I mean, there were so many things, I mean, you know, I, I keep talking about this list of things that I hadn't seen in films that I wanted to put in mind. And one of the things that constantly annoyed me about films when they have rock style characters is they always get them wrong. It's always like a skinny boy in like black leather jeans and like sunglasses with like a bottle of Jack Daniels. And he'll be a bit of a philosopher poet, but he'll be a bit screwed up. And like, he's a bit dumb and like he's constantly smoking cigarettes. And growing up as a teenager in the early nineties and then being a music journalist and meeting all these, these rock stars, they weren't like that at all. They were all these brilliant working class boys who were really well read, who treated me like a sister. They looked after me. It's only now I look back and think, God, you're so vulnerable. You're a child going out there on tour with these bands, but they were all such lovely gentlemen. So, so John Kite, the, the rock star in the movie is based on an amalgam of uh, all of teenage fan club, uh, the singer songwriter, John Grant, uh, Guy Garvey from Elbow, just these big, lovely, funny, clever working class boys who you'd want as a brother rather than a lover. There's a great scene where Johanna is told to kind of rein it in and I feel like that really resonated because I think every woman has a moment where they remember being told to calm down or not be so much or to pull back and I wondered uh, if you've had discussions with your teenage daughters about how to kind of counteract that message that they get sent as young girls. Being a woman is basically an experience where you oscillate between being told that you're not enough or that you're too much. Like it's one or the other. That's what you're constantly being told. You, you wouldn't be able to do this. Like I know this isn't a thing girls can do or you're too much, tone it down. Um, so uh, the, the line where she, uh, so she's told to tone it down because the uh, reviews that she's writing of fans are too enthusiastic. They go, you sound like an overexcited teenage girl. And she goes, I am an overexcited teenage girl. And one of the things I've tried to tell my girls is that being a fan of something is one of the most beautiful things that you can be. Uh, you know, it, you know in, in humanity's span of actions, there's nothing much lovelier uh, with with no bad consequence than just loving something passionately and telling people about it. But teenage girl fans are sort of constantly told that that's somehow shameful. I know loads of people, sort of men in bands, particularly back in the 90s, who thought that the cool fans to have were like boys in their 20s who'd stand at the back with their arms crossed, sort of going, well, that's a good core change. And it was shameful if you got teenage girl fans down the front screaming and loving you. But 
how can you in your life reject love? And if you've got a thousand girls screaming at you as an artist, that gives you the power. It gives you a mandate. It makes you feel confident. You can go off and experiment and explore. You know, why were the Beatles able to do all the incredible things they did? Because they knew they had a constituency of a million teenage girls giving them unconditional love and electricity and excitement. So I'm always telling my teenage girls, let your freak fag fly. You go out and love what you love, girls. And teenage girls have great taste. It's like such a weird um, myth that people seem to think if teenage girls like something, it's not cool. When teenage girls have historically like made, discovered the cool bands, like the Beatles, like you say, rested on teenage girls discovering them and becoming obsessed with them. Absolutely. All the best bands, their their first fan base usually was, was gay men and teenage girls. They have exquisite taste. They are the ones that are the most able to sort of calculate within a second whether something is artistically valid or not for the best reasons. Not just because something, you know, looks ostensibly cool or because it's jazz. They're like, no, this is fun. I can dance to it. This is useful for me. These are lyrics that speak to me. Um, you know, they, their criteria for what makes something better is, I think, more valid than a cool boy in his 20s going, yeah, it's jazz. That's, that's cool. Jazz isn't cool. It's just someone <laughs> mucking about. <laughs> so true um it was so refreshing as well to see johanna depicted as a horny teenager because it seems that it's something that's left out of just so many coming of age films about teenage girls why was it important to you that sex be a part a big part of the book and the film well this was another trope that i that i had on my list of like kind of must rectify this uh if i ever get to make a movie but so often the plot is that a girl doesn't really know that she's a sexual creature until a man comes and awakens her sexuality and kind of explains sex to her and opens the door to the world of sex and that's just balls like you know you're a teenage girl you go through puberty like kind of god designed our bodies so that your hand naturally rests on your genitals when you're lying down in bed like Teenage girls know about their sexuality. They don't need someone to come and mansplain kind of, you know, masturbation or, you know, or sex to them. So I wanted to make it very clear before she meets any boys or gets off with anyone. She has been exploring her own sexuality with her own hand in her bed, um, uh, having the time of her life. And she's going out and showing people her sexuality rather than having it explained to her. You've now mined your sort of teenage self twice into I'm sure multiple times in your writing but in terms of writing the book revisiting her again in writing this screenplay I think a lot of people um, are scared to revisit their teenage selves because they're worried they'll cringe or they're worried that they'll not like what they see but I love that you've said before that the more you revisit your younger self the more um, obsessed you become with her because you're like she was a badass she was so brave can you like talk about that process oh totally well first of all it, you know, as a comedy writer, if something is embarrassing and cringy, I'm going there. Like, that's that's where I want to go. You show me all of the most embarrassing things on a map and I'm in my car driving there 100 miles an hour. So that's always where you want to be. Um, and secondly, yeah, like, I think there was someone wrote a blog about six months ago. She was sort of a middle-aged mum now and she'd gone back and bought on vinyl an album that meant a lot to her in her teenage years, an Alanis Morissette album. And she wrote this huge blog about how she listened to it again, thinking she would love it, and suddenly became really embarrassed that this is what she'd been into when she was a teenager. And then her husband came back and was like, oh, no, that's not cool. You should be listening to some jazz. And I, I wrote a column in answer to this because I was so infuriated by this whole setup because if you're cool at the age of 45, the person who made you cool was that 16-year-old girl. Like, you, your teenage self is the mother to who you are now. 
that is who made you like that was the start of you and she was so brave and on her own and she knew nothing she was completely inexperienced but she had these ideas of the direction she wanted to go in and the kind of person that she wanted to be and that's why you are who you are now so you must never apologize for your teenage self you always need to be in conversation with her going well done mate you did so well there like a couple of little sex accidents you know possibly an advisable hat but my god you were amazing well done <laughs> i wish my teenage self was a bit more geeky i was just so naughty that i yeah i look back and i'm like oh i just go to the library more oh but what were you doing that i bet you had some fun though what were you doing oh so much fun sneaking out the window at age 15 i'd throw my towel out so that the um pebbles my parents wouldn't hear the pebbles as i jumped out onto the driveway the towel <laughs> and the pebble is so clever I've never yeah. seen that in a movie. How many movies have you seen where a spy is trying to break into a house, but then crunches on the gravel and he's given away? But you, a teenage girl, worked out if you put a yeah. towel on it, it's going to be quiet. You're cleverer than any spy character Tom Cruise has ever played in a movie. Yeah. One morning I actually got home um, as right as my mum would have been about to wake me up for school. Mm -hmm. So I just climbed in through the window and I was like, I was rushing because I was like, she's literally about to come into the room. I don't know what I, what to do because I'm in last night's clothes. And so I like basically jumped through the window and did like a roll onto the floor and then threw my clothes on a pile, whipped my door open with a towel and ran to the shower as if I'd gotten up before she'd woken me up. And she was like, morning, The darling. towel strikes again. Such a multifunctional <laughs> tool. Yes. yes. The towel from the pebbles <laughs> on the body. This is so, so Douglas Adams in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, when he's talking about his characters that roam the universe and like sort of this human who suddenly started roaming the universe goes, what's the best bit of advice that you can give to someone who's going to start traveling across time and space? And uh, his mentor goes, you need a towel. A towel is the most useful thing you can have. You can wear it as a sarong. If yep. something gets spilt, you can wipe it up. Like kind of you always need a towel and you are so correct. A towel is a girl's best <laughs> <Literally>. friend. <laughs> Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. <laughs> okay, anyway, back to it. So in real life, as in the movie, you grew up with a lot of siblings. Mm -hmm. And you actually said in a recent-ish interview that you think the reason you became a feminist was because your parents were quite sexist. Can you kind of expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so there were eight of us, um, and in all the dramas and films and books that I've written about my life, I always narrow down the siblings. I kind of amalgamate. I had to tell some siblings, like, they were like, why am I not in this book? I was like, well, you're two of the lesser characters, so I've kind of merged you together with another sibling. 
that caused a hoo-ha at Christmas. Um, uh, yes, but my parents were very sexist. They were very into traditional uh, gender roles. So the girls got all the thankless, endless tasks like cooking, cleaning, looking after the kids, things that just go on forever. And the boys had only one job, which was to empty the bins. That was it. Like, and if it's over in a minute and it's kind of, you know, it's kind of like, ta-da, I've done my job, I'm, I'm knocked off. And even though I didn't really know what feminism was, I knew that was unfair because they were in the same house with the same parents and the same problems and they just got the easier jobs. So when in later years I learned what feminism was, which was basically, are you a woman and feel angry and screwed over? Then you need to learn about feminism because it explains why. I was like, yes, I have found the thing that explains it. Um, so yes, that was what made me a very strident feminist, watching my brother emptying a bin and then showboating about it for two days after. <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting you say that about realising that you were yourself a feminist because I think your book, How to Be a Woman, when it was released in 2011, was, for me and my friends, such an iconic kind of moment where we all passed it around and we all read it and kind of dog-eared it. And, and I, it kind of shocked me to realise that even that recently we were reluctant to use the label feminist and it makes me realise how much that conversation has shifted in the last kind of nine, ten years. And I was wondering from your perspective what that has looked like seeing the way that young women especially have changed their relationship with that word. Oh, well, first of all, thank you for the praise. That makes me feel very happy. Um, uh, it was so when I started writing it in 2010, it was really obvious. So the thing about feminism is that, like, you know, if you haven't thought about it, it this might not occur to you, but it's not an official thing. There isn't like a god of feminism. There are rules of feminism or a Bible of feminism. The feminism doesn't live anywhere. It's just a, a group sourced idea that humans have come up with and generally women. And everyone's contributed all these little ideas to it to try and make women's lives better and to try and make women realize what the reality of their lives are. The things that make them unhappy probably aren't their own fault a lot of the time. It's a systemic social problem. And in 2010, the conversation about feminism had just kind of stopped. It had become very academic. It would only happen in very kind of serious textbooks or late at night on TV because I blame the Spice Girls. Because when the Spice Girls came along in the 90s, they started talking about girl power. And for a long time, the phrase girl power replaced feminism. Whenever we wanted to talk about strong women and women being together, we talked about girl power instead of feminism. And although that was great for introducing the idea of female power to little kids, girl power doesn't really mean anything other than being friends with your friends and buying Spice Girls records. Whereas feminism is this whole movement that's been going on for centuries about the social, economic and physical and political equality between the sexes. And so it seemed very obvious to me that we needed to make that conversation happen again in public in a way that was really easy to understand, just to remind people about what a great idea feminism was and how useful it was to women. So when I started writing it, I was in a massive panic because I knew someone else would write a book like that, just explaining what it is and how useful it is for girls and how it's a thing that will save your life. So it was the most unfeminist I'd been when I was writing it because I was just like, I don't know. I don't want <laughs> no any other, other bitch. woman better write yeah. this feminist book before me. <laughs> Literally that. All these other bitches so better good. be slower than me. Fuck them. I'm going to do it first. Um, so I wrote it in a huge panic and I just, I, I really, because the other feminist movement that had happened in my lifetime before that was sort of in the early 90s there was the riot girl movement which is sort of Courtney Love and Bikini Kill and stuff which is a really cool feminist movement but they would only talk about their feminism in fanzines that you had to buy in specialist record shops in Seattle and I can remember at the time as a teenager thinking that's no use like globally that's going to be no use because like most girls can't go to a cool record shop in Seattle and buy this fanzine like a kid in a you know in a council house in Wolverhampton is not going to find the feminism if you're hiding it in fanzines you need to 
feminism's too good an idea to hide in a special place where only the clever and cool people can find it. So I just tried to write the funniest, most accessible, friendly book that wasn't lecturing to women, just going, look at this amazing idea that's been around for a century. Like, we're feminists, aren't we? This is great. And even like the sequel to How to Build a Girl, How to Be Famous, which you started working on like over a decade ago, is about some extremely timely topics at the moment based on a powerful man sexually exploiting younger women yes well that was one of those moments where as a writer like I mean it often only happens once in your career where an idea that you've been working on for ages suddenly syncs up with what's happening in the world so in the it's the sequel to how to build a girl Johanna's now 18 and she has sex with a famous comedian and then finds out that he secretly videoed them having sex and is showing this tape at parties and that her reputation is being ruined and that she's being sexually shamed and as I was finishing this book off the Me Too movement exploded and it was incredible to see that women across the world had come up with the same idea that I had for Johanna in the book, which is that if you have been sexually shamed, if you have been told to keep something secret, if you've been exploited by an old person, what can you do? And the only solution is you have to talk about it. You have to be the one that goes out there and goes, no, I'm going to tell this story now. I'm going to explain why I was in that room. I'm going to explain what the power balance was. I'm going to explain how it affected me. I need to have a voice in this now. Um, so the very dramatic scene where Johanna, she gets the sex tape and plays it at a gig on a huge screen and narrates her own sex tape. So for the first time, she's explaining what was going on there. And that was kind of what all those women across the world were doing with me too. So that was, that was one of those moments where you're just like, I feel like I'm connected with all the women in the world. We've all come up with the same idea at the same time. We just need to tell our stories. It's so funny because it's like back when you released How to Be a Woman, it's like you were kind of reintroducing the word feminism for people to understand. And it's like as if now we're kind of doing the same thing with the word consent. Yes, totally. And I don't know if you've seen Michaela Cole's I May Destroy You, but that's like I'm obsessed with that at the moment. We will not stop talking <laughs> about it. We've talked about it in every podcast episode for four <laughs> weeks in a row. It's a mess. We're such fans. Oh, she's such we're a queen. Such, we're so obsessed with her. Yeah, she's extraordinary. And like, and the, I'm so grateful that like I think if she come along any earlier she wouldn't have been allowed to do what she did which was to be given mm. complete control to tell her story in exactly the way that she wanted to and when you see something that's that authentic and that real and that specific and that beautifully crafted and curated so it's absolutely what she wanted to say and do you just have to bow down and go the queen did it that is a once yeah. in a decade achievement that's incredible well we wanted to ask sort of on the topic of that which is that um these shows and films and books and uh, even Instagram accounts and conversations that we're having now make us feel like maybe it's the best time ever to be a teenage girl because there's so many resources available. But then I guess the expectations or all of the downsides that come with the internet can kind of cancel that out. Like, do you feel like it's easier to be a teenage girl now or is that not the right question to ask? It's so hard because I think 90% of any conversation that we have about anything social and political at the moment is about social media and how that works because mm. social media is the biggest thing that's happened to humanity for thousands of years. Basically, the biggest migration in the history of humanity has happened in the last 10 years. And it's not refugees, you know, it's not to do with wars. It's the fact that half the world's population has migrated to online and everyone can speak to each other at the same time. So, and we're at the very beginning of that. It's very messy. Um, uh, there are no rules or laws to it. There's no one in control of it. Um, it's, it's been allowed to be a bit of a Wild West. And like the Wild West, it tends to be dominated by the sort of angriest, shoutiest, straight white men. 
But at the same time, the platform is so huge, it has given women a chance for the first time to talk to each other globally across the world and have this amazing consciousness raising where we can just talk to each other directly and, and talk about these things. And when you see what the big advances have been in feminism in the last 10 years, it's been things. So in the film, when, uh, you know, in How to Build a Girl, where Johanna's being, uh, you know, sort of sexually harassed, um, uh, you know, you, there wasn't really a phrase for that in the early 90s. I just thought I must have done something wrong and that I would have to cure it myself. But 30 years later, because women can talk to each other all over the world, we've come up with all these words that explain it and allow women to know that it's not an individual experience where they have made a mistake, but this is a social problem. So we've got gaslighting. We can talk about the Bechdel test. We can talk about Me Too. We can talk about sexual harassment. Uh, you know, we can talk about systematic, uh, you know, racism and sexism. So in terms of a consciousness raising, it's the best time to be a girl because you can go out there wherever happens to you and find someone else who's had that happen to them and they will tell you how they dealt with it. But what we need next is for there to be more women in political power because there's only so far that consciousness raising and talking about these things can take you. After that, you need legislation. After that, you need companies to change and for there to be more women and for there to be more representation across the board. So we're at the beginning of this process that could be incredible. Um, and I'm just sort of standing at the sidelines going, come on girls, this is it, we can do this. This is an incredible time to be a woman. Amazing. Um, one last question that I have to ask you now I've got you on the line, is what was it like when you were 18 and you moved to London and you lived across the road from Morrissey in your first house? <laughs> it was unreal. So I had been living in a three-bedroom council house with eight siblings and at one point 24 dogs because my parents were breeding German shepherds for cash. And on my 18th birthday, which is the first day you're legally allowed to get overdrawn, I went to the bank, got a massive overdraft and moved down to London, to Camden, just at the beginning of Britpop. And when I opened my door... Thursday in order to have my breakfast cigarette which was a Marlboro menthol because that's the cigarette that both gives you a cigarette and a fresh minty taste it's like cleaning your teeth and having a cigarette at the same time and uh, yeah across the road out of the door popped Morrissey and just got on his bicycle and cycled off and then 10 minutes later Alan Bennett came past on his bicycle going the other way and I was like well this must be what London's like <laughs> kind of like it's obviously <laughs> just like a crazy musical where everywhere you go there are famous people and every so often I would have a confused and lost Morrissey fan knock on my door uh going do you know where Morrissey is and I'd have to just point across the road and go there but he's not very chatty so <laughs> I wouldn't bother knocking on his door <laughs> that's amazing it's like Izzy how when we first moved to London we went to a cafe and Phoebe Waller-Bridge walked in and we were like <gasps> oh my god oh, we've yeah. arrived and we just know like that's never gonna happen again for the next five years but like it was just that magical yeah. <laughs> what did you do did you go and talk to her or did you just bask no. in no. the nearness yeah no we 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 just like stared at her and then she kept laughing and she was doing her bellowing laugh and yeah it was <laughs> yeah. brilliant she's whenever whenever i go to the baftas every year you can always tell where phoebe waller bridge is in the room because there's like a crowd of people you know how planes <laughs> you know how planes circle yeah. airports before they can land they're waiting for their slot people are just circling around phoebe waller bridge waiting for a moment where she's free and they can go and stand next to her it's like and i suspect michaela cole will be like that at this year's baftas she's this year's absolutely thing that we're all que we're all basically just queuing up waiting to meet either Phoebe Waller-Bridge or Michaela Cole at the moment that's what it's like to be a woman we're just waiting to touch them <laughs> yes <laughs> okay we're getting told we need to wrap up now oh I'm so sorry I could um, chat but... forever <laughs> yeah thank you so much for your time we absolutely loved speaking to you we're massive fans and we now live in London so hopefully you'll cycle past us <gasps> absolutely yes yeah <laughs> let's all bump into each other in a pub that'd be amazing yes yes Please. <laughs> Thank you, Bye. guys. Thank you. Take care. Bye. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.